we got our Bible? Can you trust your Bible translation? Because I dare say nobody brought in an original Greek, Hebrew or Aramaic text this morning to read, did they? No? Nobody going to surprise me? You had to read your Bible in a language which was translated by somebody at some point in time. And so the question is, can we trust what we have? Is it as close to what was originally written as possible? <laughs> Where are the ushers? <laughs> Yes, that's exactly right. Uh, Moses was the first to download something from the... Uh, <laughs> wasn't he? So not only that, but can you trust that of all the books that are around at the time, that they pick the right ones to put in your Bible? And those are the types of questions that are going to be behind what we're considering today, which is called the Canon of Scripture. Oh, it's not that type of canon, is it? <laughs> the original meaning of canon for the Greeks was not a gun like that, but it was a rod, a ruler, a staff or a measuring rod. And so a canon meant a standard of measuring. And eventually it became, not, it became to measure anything. A canon is to measure it. And so... A renowned scholar, F.F. Booth, says that when we speak of the canon of Scripture, that word canon has a simple meaning, which just means it's the list of the books that we include in the Scripture, which were considered to be worthy of being included there, because they were sacred and they just had that mark of authenticity about them. So before we think about how they decided which of those books that were around they should put in there, we've got to look at the actual process of translating, translating, how they translated the ones that they actually chose. So let me give you an example of the issues which are involved in translation. Suppose in a thousand years' time, someone finds a book written at this period of time. It's a great book, it's become very popular, but it was written in muck and boodin, and one of the lines of the book said, Mabel's cousin John had a few ruse loose in the top paddock. So the translator comes along a thousand years later and says, what are they talking about? And oh, someone says, oh, we've got to interpret this word for word. So I think this means John had a vermin problem and we need to bring in the shooters to cull the ruse that are wandering around in his top paddock. Well, someone else would say, no, 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 no. We need to think about the thought that's been expressed there and say that thought in a way that we'd say that thought now. So we might say, uh, oh, John was living with an intellectual challenge. And then others might say, hold on, this book we're reading, it's a really inspiring book, isn't it? So we all... We ought to say this and translate this in a way that makes us really feel the truth of what's being said here. And it also has to encourage us deeply at the same time. So we might say something like, Mabel's beloved cousin John demonstrated his love for his community 
in a creatively different manner from most of us. Translation is not black and white, it's not simple. Oh, I don't get into there. Oh no, there is. That's the one I wanted. So, let's consider this. This is a range of ways that you can translate. And so we've got on the one end, on this end, we've got what's called an interlinear. And what these guys say was, well, we're not going to bother about the grammar, we're not going to the sentences, we're just going to take the word, the original word there, and we're going to give you what that word means in our language. And uh, translators from that and through that first section there, uh, they try to translate each word as possible as they can the old language word translated into your language. And then in the middle, there's some people, there's a lot of translations that say, well, let's say, what was the thought? What, they were, what were they trying to say? Because the meaning is bigger than just the literal words. As in the example of Mabel's friend John, the exact words used are trying to make a point beyond the literal meaning of their words. And the third band are those who want to make the Bible as close to modern literature as possible. They want it to sound like a well-written novel or something with common vernacular, which means the common language. And they might also have other motives too. They might want you to feel the text or just feel comfortable about what you're reading. And so on the, trans on the paraphrase region, you've got those guys up to the message at the end there. Uh, and then another step further beyond that you get things like the Passion Version which is uh, tries to come from a, a viewpoint of expressing an emotional version of the Bible and in order to do that they have to insert stuff which you can't really say is actually in there. When I was a young Christian the big issue really was about the King James Version that's the only one that uh, God had in heaven and he handed down to Moses, they would say. And, you know, people who were uh, unable to cope with the these and the thous and they thought, well, it, there should be something more up to date than that. But which one are you going to trust? And there was a lot of heat in that discussion back in that day because there were underlying issues involved like uh, which translation did you get saved under? And when you have verses stuck in your head, which version are they? And, and then there's the, you know, is that a Catholic one or is that a Protestant one? You know, I don't know. And, and, and the J-Dubs, they did something. What? Anyway, what did it come down to? The, the efficacy of your translation comes down to your uh, research and underneath the research is the sources that you use to get the translation. And so the best translations are those which have the best connection with original documents and they also have the best team of translators. Any translation out there which has only got one guy who did it, you're going to go, no, 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 there's only one perfect guy and he's in heaven at the moment. And so, issues of translation. But back to where we were, which books should be there in the first place? And many books were written during the Old Testament and the New Testament but not were all used and 
they were classified, there were four types of them. There was a homologomena, <laughs> books that everyone accepted. There were the anti-legomena. I should have practiced saying that before, shouldn't I? <laughs> so, those, so the books that are disputed by some, there are books that are rejected by all, and then there's the apocrypha, books which are accepted by some, uh, which we're just going to mention those ones, the apocrypha, because they are in some Bibles. And that word apocrypha comes from a Greek word which basically means hidden. And the sense used very early in the sense of something secretive, something concealed. But also a book about whose origin is a bit, well, we're a bit unsure about that. It'd be a bit shady going on there. And in general, in the pro Protestant circles, it just means the extra books that are found in a Catholic Old Testament. They've got some extra books in there. And the main reason Protestants don't accept that is because the, the Hebrews didn't. They had their set number of books as attested by old uh, historians like Josephus who said it's very firm. They had 39, the same 39 books that we have in our Old Testament, although they broke them up a bit differently. So you're going, you said there's a whole pile of books out there. Well, what are some of these other books? There's a whole pile of them, isn't there? Which we've never heard of. And we don't need to hear of them, but just to say that there is a lot of them, uh, there's more of them. Okay, wow, look at all those names. And if that's the Old Testament, what about the New Testament? You've got lots of Gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. A lot of people said, well, let's uh, we'll have write up our own Gospel. The Gospel of Bartholomew, Basilides and so on. And then they said, well, we'll also write our own version of the Acts of the New Testament. And there's piles of different versions of that. And then what about, we, we, like, we read a bit from Revelation, apocryphal literature. And there's people who like to write about the apocalypse, the end of times. Well, we don't really need to know about them because they're not up to the same par as everything else. But it just gives you an idea. The guys who have given us the Bible had to get rid of a lot of chaff to get there. And so as the church grew back in the day, people who had known Jesus started to die off and it became more important to gather together the writings and uh, so what did they, when they gathered stuff together, what are the things that they evaluated it by? What was their criteria for choosing? Well, of course, the big one is whether it was written by an apostle or a prophet. And even if something came along which was really good, like the Shepherd of Hermas, uh, people found it a very encouraging book, but it wasn't written by an apostle, so turf that one. Oh, go back. Um, it had to be the sort of thing that, gave you really good guidelines for how to live. The early church wanted to know books that you could read in church and we'd listen to them and go, yes, we can learn, we can grow from that. Uh, that it uh, had information which gave us a good defence against the philosophical and religious trends around in the time and helped us against heresies because back in those days, for example, not everybody took the same selection of books. There was a guy called Marcion he was one of the earliest heretics in AD 140, he had his own canon. And he 
throughout most of the New Testament, except for Luke's Gospel and ten of Paul's letters. And then there are other guys, the Montanists and the Gnostic groups, who said, no, these are the holy writings. And the uh, other criteria, uh, well, it had to feel inspired, didn't it? It had to have that sense of inspiration that you read it and you just felt like the Holy Spirit was working through it. And it had to be orthodox, which meant that all of us, who all the Christians had to agree, you know, this is a good book. This is part of it. There was one called the Gospel of Peter, for example, that was thrown out because it actually hinted that there was a heretical view that Jesus only seemed to suffer instead of really suffering, which was called docetism. And uh, you know, universally recognised by the church. Now here's an interesting thing. If, uh, we, if Alan walked in today with his Bible in his hand and had one of the Bibles from that day and he had all of the New Testaments, he'd be walking in like this, trying to carry it because it was all handwritten and was big. And so they tended to group together uh, scriptures. They'd group all the Gospels together and there was a practical amount to carry around. They'd group the Acts and the General Epistles together. They'd group Paul's letters together and they'd group Revelation in there. So what did these manuscripts look like? Well, there's three main types of these manuscripts. Those made out of papyrus, which is just reeds. They'd lay a reed that way and a bit like weaving, they'd weave them in and squash them out, water them down and make them into paper. And the earliest biblical record that we have, the earliest manuscripts were written on reeds made of papyrus. And the things that were written there uh, on papyrus were something called unseals. Now an unseal is all capital letters and no spaces between the words. All capital letters, no spaces. So that'll take a bit of adjustment for us to get used to reading that. And they've still got 362 bits of those around, 362 manuscripts of like that are around still. And uh, after a while I thought, well, let's speed up the process of writing. Let's change the script a bit to minuscules. It's a bit like running writing versus uh, printing capitals. And they, these things uh, could be written more quickly. They weren't as big, didn't take up as much space. But they didn't come around till the 9th century. So you've got 800 years or so beforehand of the, the unseals, capitals, all uh, no spaces between the words. And some of those go back to the 2nd and 3rd century, dated back to that, and they're very important because they are still written so close to the original period and we still have them. And we have 88 papyri manuscripts of portions of the New Testament. So that's the overview of the types of things you get. But what were the big ones? What were the big ones that we get? And the first one is one called Codex Vaticanus. that dates back to that period of time. This is considered the most important source of the New Testament text. And why is it called Vaticanus? Well, it's been in the Vatican Library since 1481. But they, they're a bit exclusive. They wouldn't let anybody else read it until 1889. Didn't, don't play well, well with others, I think. But anyway, it's been around from that time. And it's rare in that it contains, in Greek, 
just about all of the Old and New Testaments. It doesn't include the pastoral epistles and Hebrews 9.15 to Revelation, but in spite of that, it's considered to be the most exact copy of the New Testament today. And printed copies of the Greek New Testament rely very heavily on Codex Vaticanus. And then we have another important one, Codex Sinaiticus, shortened to Aleph, which is the first letter. Nearly as valuable as the other one. Why is it called Sinaiticus? Because it was discovered by a textual critic called Constantine Tischendorf at St. Catherine's Monastery, which you all know is on Mount Sinai. He discovered in 1844, stumbling around there, it was in a waste paper basket, it was going to be burnt. And ooh, grab that man. And that contains over half of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament, except for Mark 16, verses 9 to 20, and John 7, 53 to 8, 11. So these are your two most important things on which, upon which the Bible is based. But we also have another important one, Codex Alexandrinus, because it was composed in Alexandria in Egypt. And it's the next cab of the rank after Vaticanus and Sinaiticus. And it's a near complete version of the Bible very little missing except for some bits of Matthew and John and a little bit of 2 Corinthians. Interestingly, this was originally to be offered as a gift to King James of England. But he died before he received it and so Charles I got it. Unfortunately, it wasn't known early enough to be used in the King James Bible. They didn't have access to it yet. Now here's an interesting one. Codex Ephraimi Rescriptus. And you go, it looks a bit blurry. It is because it's a palimpsest. It's a manuscript in which the original writing was erased. And then they wrote over the top of it. Uh, but through chemicals and hard work, the original writing can be, un can be seen. And they did that because, you know, paper was pretty hard to come by and you wanted to do something, you'd write over the top of it. And so that's got material from every book of the New Testament except 2 Thessalonians and 2 John. A very, it's very old. And then there's another interesting one, Codex Bezae, from around 450 or 550. And that's distinctive because it's got the, the Bible in two languages. It's got Greek and Latin. And it contains the Gospel the Gospels and Acts. And of those five very important manuscripts, the only one that was available to the translators of the King James Bible was the uh, Codex Bezae. So that's an interesting little bit of information. So we've had unseals and we've had minuscules. Uh, minuscules, uh, there's 2,795 of those. And then there's something called lectionaries. You know, like uh, in the, you'd take uh, a section of the Bible, you'd divide it up into bits so you could read every, a new bit each week, a lectionary. And uh, there's lots of those, 2,200 of those around. Also, of use in the translators' use in coming up with their 
idea of the scripture, their translation, there were other translations back in the day. The old Syriac translation was at 400, so that's pretty close. There's an old Latin version translated AD 150. Now that is really close to the time. Some of the old Latin copies are as old as the uh, Vaticanus and Sinaiticus, Sinaiticus. And the old Latin is by far the most important of the Latin versions because it goes back so close. And there's other ones. There's a Syriac translation, a Latin Vulgate. And people who were writers in those times, the early church fathers, when they wrote their stuff, they included a lot of Bible in there. So we've got their knowledge in there as well. The most famous one, King James Version, isn't it? So let's have a bit of an idea of what made that possible. And we go back to 1604, and the King James summons this mob. The issue, religious toleration. And at that Hampton Court conference, we have Dr. John Reynolds says it would be a really good idea to have an authorised version that everybody was happy with. And they say, well, fair enough. So let's uh, do this, but let's use what we have as well, the Bishop's Bible and the Tyndale had done a bit of commentary, a, a bit of translation, uh, a guy called Matthew, Coverdale, there was a great Bible, there was a Geneva Bible around. That's what people were using, those things. And so they started in 1607 to do that. 54 men, you know, who knew Greek and Hebrew, obviously. Two, two at Westminster, two at Oxford, two at Cambridge. They had their sections to work on and then there was an overall group of revisers and that took them two years and nine months to get out in 1611 the first copy of their manuscripts appointed to be read in the churches, it said. And two years later, they had a new edition with 400 variations. So I most noticed a few little things that needed upgrading. So 1613 is probably the better version if you got, ever got one. And it replaced the Bishop's Bible. But it still got a lot of stiff competition from the Geneva Bible. Do you know what group of people favoured the Geneva Bible in those times, the and, yep, Calvinists from Geneva and the Puritans. Yes. And so the King James, though, became the most successful um, uh, Bible for the English-speaking people around the world because, you know, the scholarship was good uh, and, and scholarship in general, literary scholarship was good at that time and they could learn from some of the other translations and it wasn't something done just by one guy. There's a whole legitimate group. The weakness of it is it was uh, 350 years ago and since then archaeology, more manuscripts have been found and uh, the manuscript available to the King James translator is not as good as what we have today, particularly in regard to the Greek text and they had a, something called the Recept Texas Receptus which was medieval, which means you know, medieval ages around the 1500s. So it was a text from around that time. So um, just a couple of notes about 
the two big contenders, I think, the King James versus the NIV. And the NIV is as one of the ones that was in the middle of everything in there. Has been done by more than 100 scholars. And they have used all of those big texts that we've looked at. And there's something around called a critical text. So the scholars have looked at all the little variations, they've sifted them out. And there's a scholarly version called the critical text, which says this is the best way of translating that. And the NIV, as we've seen, uh, takes, tries to take a thought. What is he trying to say? Let's express that thought in a modern way. But if we go for perspective, at the end of it all, King James comes from Byzantine text form. NIV comes from an Alexandrian text form. Regardless of that, 85% of all those things is exactly the same. 85% agreement, whatever translation you're on. So you go, well, what's the best translation? Depends a bit on what you're after. If you want your literary accuracy to be word for word, then you give that some consideration if you want to go for thought for thought. And really anything that was across to about the, the middle on that, that diagram is, is a good one to use. You go into the paraphrased versions because you like the way it's said, then uh, you're taking someone's opinion of what's being said there. Point is, any genuine translation can be trusted. Paraphrases are interesting, might give you some insights, but they should always be checked against the genuine translation. And the fact is, God uses any of those versions to save people. You can discover Jesus through all of them, but as you grow as a Christian, make your foundation in a proper translation, not in a paraphrase, and memorise translations, not paraphrases. So let's pray. It's good to know, Lord, that there's an awful lot of thought and scholarship and careful, uh, careful work going into giving us your word, your holy word. And we can trust it, we can build our life on it, and we can know that what we're hearing is the true message and the true gospel. And so we thank you for the miracle of that. We thank you for the, the unnumbered uh, people who have worked on bringing it to us. We bless you for the way you've motivated people to do that because they knew that it says that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. Amen.